Hey everyone, this is Craig Valentine from TurbulenceTraining.com, and I have this very special guest on here today. We are going to have a fat loss workout battle on the phone, and it is John Romanello from Final Face Fat Loss. John, welcome to the call. Thank you very much, Craig. Thank you to everyone who is listening. I'm excited to be here and engage in the epic battle of uh, fat loss. This is going to be fun. Yes, and not only is it going to be an epic battle, it is an epic battle to fix slow fat loss, which is... Uh, and trouble spots, which is a big problem for a lot of people. So, mm-hmm. you know, you did me a huge favor by doing the 24-hour perfect day fat loss program. We really appreciate that. And it's over on the blog, and I don't know, I've sent people there, so hopefully they can find it at ttfatloss.com. Now, let's get into the specifics, and we're going to jump right into the workout. So the okay. workout that you put in there was a density workout. It was an intense workout. And I know that's part of your uh, trouble spot approach. So maybe even before we get to the workout, talk about the training approaches for different trouble spots and then walk us through that intense workout <laughs> on the block. Sure. Well, to give you an overview, trouble spots is really just um, a way of it, – it's the term that we used before we understood that these trouble spots were caused by hormonal issues. So what we're finding, both myself and a number of other trainers, and I have to give credit here, a lot of research is being done by a very famous strength coach named Charles Poliquin at the Poliquin Institute in um, in uh, Canada, in the cold white north uh, um, where, where you guys live. Um, so basically what he does is a lot of hormonal testing and a lot of body fat testing. And what we have found in the industry at large over the past several years is that storing body fat in certain places corresponds with higher levels of certain hormones. So, for example, if you have very high cortisol, it turns out that you're going to store most of your fat in your belly. And therefore, if you have a lot of belly fat, it's a very short step for us to figure out that your cortisol levels are probably out of whack. And we all we need to do is look at your fat storage patterns, and it gives us an indication as to your hormonal environment. So certain hormones are related to fat storage in certain areas. Cortisol and belly fat is one of them. Insulin is related to fat storage in the love handles and also the upper back, which is really interesting. We don't talk too much about the upper back because most people are mostly dealing with uh, with the love handle region, but it also manifests itself there. And then estrogen, which manifests itself in um, fat storage in the lower body and also uh, in the upper body, particularly around the chest. Um, it's, and this is obviously has a little bit to do with location of the mammary glands. Uh, so you don't hear too many complaints about that with women, um, but you do, you know, guys who are have a lot of estrogen-related fat storage are dealing with man boobs, and, and that's something. So the way that we do this, if these are hormonal issues, then you have to figure out how do we address these hormones. Now, we're mostly going to talk about training, but I should say right off the bat that there are certainly a lot of things that you can do in terms of both diet and lifestyle to begin to address these hormonal issues. So, for example, if you are dealing with uh, insulin management issues and you know that insulin management is in part due to your carbohydrate intake, then right off the bat, you can lower carbohydrate intake, you can change the type of carbs that you take in, and that will help begin to sort of offset those things. And so that should be considered. But strictly in terms of training, what we have found is that we can fight hormones with hormones. So, for example, cortisol can be offset, and that's, again, the belly fat hormone. It can be offset with another hormone called growth hormone. Growth hormone is 
produced when we do um, a lot of different types of exercise, but one of the things that we have found is that when you create lactic acid, there is a corresponding increase in the amount of growth hormone that you produce. So uh, lactic acid is a, is a byproduct that is produced when you break down tissues. So uh, that and pyruvate are sort of responsible for the burn that you feel. So doing training that is specifically intentioned to produce lactic acid will in turn help you produce more growth hormone. Growth hormone uh, sort of gets produced when the acidity of your overall um, um, metabolic environment gets higher. And so if you think about, like, lactic acid uh, creating a burn, growth hormone is sort of the, the healing salve that is released to help cool the acidity and restore everything to a, a more balanced stuff. That's a, that's a good analogy. It's not exa- That's a, actually not, you know, completely scientifically valid, um, but just in terms of an analogy, it helps people understand what's happening. So the lactic acid gets produced, and then your body starts producing growth hormone to help balance things out. Now, growth hormone is exceptional for a number of reasons. One – it is one of the most powerful compounds in the body for both building muscle and burning fat. But with specific regard to belly fat, growth hormone helps to offset cortisol. So if cortisol is very high, the more growth hormone you produce, the more it will start to lower those cortisol levels. And over time, again, you can see how that would allow you to lose belly fat. So that's one way. Does that make sense? Am I, am I being clear? Yeah, so I guess to, uh, do you want to keep going or can I ask another question? Oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll just quickly cover the rest because I know we're kind of in a rush. So um, just so that everyone is aware of which hormones we're talking about, uh, if you're dealing with insulin, the, the hormone that can offset that is something called IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor. Um, and in final phase fat loss, the relationship between those two is pretty well explained. But if you want to produce a lot of IGF-1, and increase your insulin sensitivity, then you're going to do a lot of big combination-type movements. And if you want to offset estrogen, obviously, you would be looking to produce more testosterone, and, you know, that would help lower your estrogen levels or at least lower the effect that high levels of estrogen have on your body. And to do that, we do density training, which is the workout that I did in the perfect fat loss day that I gave you. I guess the the quick question I have is how do you separate, you know, like all of the – kind of metabolic workouts are going to boost these some of these hormones a little bit, mm-hmm. if not a lot. So how yeah. do you separate, you know, the one being better than another? Well, it's not that they're better than another. The greatest thing about them is that they all kind of supercharge each other by working in concert. That's why they're, all of them are in the program. You know, I've tried it where, let's say, for example, you know, I, I don't particularly have a problem with belly fat, and I certainly don't really have a problem with high estrogen. I mostly have trouble with insulin management. So I've tried to create programs where I'm only doing workouts that are intended to manage insulin by producing more IGF-1. And they work. They're not ineffective. But what we find is that all of these things work better when they're done kind of in a rotational style. And whether that's because of, you know, quote-unquote muscle confusion or just staying ahead of the adaptive curve, or if it's because there's interplay between these hormones, and I suspect it's that one, it's just more effective to do all of them. So, you know, even though you might only be dealing with lower body fat storage, you don't just want to do density training. You want to do all of them. But what you're going to find is the presence of the density training is going to start you down that fat loss road, and your journey down that road is going to be accelerated by all of the other ones. So you don't want to necessarily isolate it out. You just want to have an understanding of why it's happening. And that is why the book is is written in the way that it is, to explain things 
in the way that it's done. Now, certainly you could um, hit the scales a little bit more if you are mostly dealing with lower body fat storage, and we know that that can be affected by density training. Well, then maybe you do two density workouts a week instead of just one, and that will help a little bit, but you can't do only density training. You know, all of these workouts in some regard will produce all of these hormones. But by having a workout that is specifically designed to release more of one hormone and doing that once per week and then dealing with the other hormones on different days, that supercharges everything. Like anything else in the body, there's no real isolation exercise. Even a bicep curl doesn't just work your biceps. You know, your shoulders activate as stabilizers. Your abs and lower back are involved. Your forearms work to curl the weight up. So even though it's mostly a bicep exercise, in much the same way, density training is mostly for estrogen, but other things are involved. So that's a, I think that's an analogy that will help people. So it's just about understanding that the program is written in a scientific way to allow for these things to take advantage of one another and, and work in concert and, um, and sort of uh, allow for a synergistic effect rather than simply an additive one. Okay, perfect. All right, so let's move back to that workout then. And cool. Now, um, I, the way the way I did the workout, no, I, I just happen to love. I've always loved density training because it's very challenge based. You know, you just do as much as you can, and then you just try to beat that every subsequent set. So, the way that I did it in that particular instance, the space in my gym is a little bit limited. Um, I worked out in the build in the gym in my building downstairs, and so we have one power cage, and no one happened to be on it. So I decided I was going to monopolize it, which isn't the nicest thing to do, but I was in a rush. Um, so because I didn't want to mess around with having multiple barbells or multiple things, all I did was I just picked three exercises, or four exercises, I think it was, where I could do like a, you know, a reasonable number of reps with 185 pounds. And I just chose 185 pounds because it was just easy to throw on a 35 and a 25 on each side. Um, and so once I had done that first set and established a baseline, I knew that all I had to do was beat those number of reps in that amount of time in subsequent sets. So one of the really important things to take away there is that, yes, if you're trying to gain muscle, you should always have an idea of, like, what your starting points are and calculate percentages of one rep max or ten rep max. But for fat loss, it becomes a little less important. And one of the things people always ask me about final phase fat loss is, well, what if I don't have free weights or what if I only have, if I can only train with body weight? doesn't matter. The important thing is that the efficacy of final phase fat loss comes not from the workouts themselves, although they're kick-ass workouts, I'll give myself some credit. It's the concepts, following the concepts, the methods, rotating training styles every week, doing workouts that are based on density, doing workouts that are based on lactic acid. That's important. The equipment doesn't matter. Any exercise can be replaced, okay? Any, ultimately, the weight doesn't even matter that much as long as it's challenging. You know, in, in the workout that I gave you, theoretically, I could have used three different weights for three different exercises, but I didn't. I just used the same weight because that was what was going to make the workout faster and easier. In order to make it harder, I just pushed myself harder, and that's what made the workout effective. So this is a really important point for people. So we'll talk about that workout specifically, but in both final phase fat loss and turbulence training and anything else you guys do, it is the methods, following the methods, the concepts upon which the entire program is written is going to be by far more important than 
trying to join a gym so that you can get those workouts done in the exact way that they're written. If you need to replace a barbell squat with a dumbbell squat, that's fine. If you need to replace a dumbbell overhead press with a resistance band overhead press, fine. If you need to replace a barbell bench press with push-ups, again, it is totally, totally fine. For the purposes of fat loss, ultimately, as long as you are working hard and following the concepts of the modalities, that is going to make the difference. And that's a really, really frequently asked question, so I just wanted to clear that up. So um, sorry for that little tangent, but I think that's really important stuff. Well, no, uh, I, I was actually going to have you go into this specific workout and okay. suggest substitutions for that oh, all right. so, workout that you do. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I did um, a barbell push press, which is sort of an overhead uh, explosive movement, followed by a bent over row and followed by a front squat. Now, there was 185 pounds on the bar, all three of those exercises, and I just did them for, you know, 20 seconds and then 30 seconds and 30 seconds for as many reps as I could. Now, um, what I would suggest that you do, if you don't have a barbell, you could do a few things. Let's, let's start with resistance bands because you can get those anywhere. What you would do is do uh, an overhead press with resistance band where you're standing on the band with your legs spread kind of wide. And again, the wider you spread your legs there, the more tension you'll have on the band and the harder that is. So you would just do the resistance band overhead press, do as many reps as you can in 20 to 30 seconds. So pick a, a time frame, see how many reps you did, and then the next time you do it, you either stand even wider to make the resistance harder or use a, a heavier band. A lot of times when you buy these bands from, you know, Body Elastics or the other band manufacturers, they'll come with multiple tensions. So for the bent row, you could tie the resistance band around anything from, um, you know, a banister to the, the leg of a chair, hopefully that is sturdy and isn't going to move, around a doorknob. And then you would just do, you know, a bent over row. <clears throat> and then for the front squat, again, you can stand on the band with your legs spread and put your hands into, uh, you know, kind of the same position you would for a barbell squat and just go from there. Now, if you don't have bands but you have dumbbells, you can do a dumbbell push press. You could do a double arm bent over row, and I like that better than a single arm bent over row. Single arm bent over row, you know, you're leaning on the bench and it does have merit for heavy weight, but you don't really involve your core that much. So I would suggest that someone just use two separate dumbbells for just bent over rows, and then they bring those weights up and let, let them rest on top of their shoulder for squats or even keep them down at their sides and do dumbbell squats. Now, let's say you don't have any of that. Let's say the only thing you have is a single kettlebell. You could still do this workout. All you need to do is do one-armed kettlebell push presses. First, you do your left arm, then your right arm. Always start with the weaker side. So if you're, left, uh, if you're right-handed, let's assume your left arm is going to be weaker, you would start with the left arm. Um, so you do left arm push presses, right arm push presses. Again, you do those for about 10 seconds each. Uh, and then you do left arm bent row, right arm bent row. And then you can just do a single front squat where you hold that kettlebell in, in front of you, goblet style. Now, in a perfect world, you'll be able on the next set to increase weight and try to get more reps. Now, if you can't do that because your equipment is limited, just focus instead on increasing the number of reps. And maybe if you have shoulder issues and you don't want to press things over your head, you can just do anything where you're pressing forward. So if you have machines at your gym, you can do a chest press or a cable press. If you are, again, working out at home, you could do a bench press or a dumbbell bench press. And finally, if you're just using your body weight and you don't want to press over your head, you can go right into a push-up. 
<clears throat> and the goal here instead, you know, in those cases, maybe if you're not capable of making them harder by adding more weights, um, and even with body weight exercise, there are ways to make them more challenging. But if you're not capable, um, you just try to beat that number of reps in the same amount of time. Okay. That's it? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> right. Excuse me. Well, uh, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but is there any other um, substitutions? We'll just talk about substitutions for a little bit longer for squats. Mm-hmm. Bench and deadlift. So you covered a lot for the for the pressing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you just want to mention? Um, well, for squats, you know, the biggest people, the uh, excuse me, the biggest problem that people run into with squats is really that if they're training at home, um, they don't have a, a squat rack, so they can't load up heavy. Um, or they, if they're doing dumbbells, they just run out of weight because people tend to get very strong with their legs very quickly. And so the easiest thing to do, as you obviously know, is to move on to single leg variations. So to start, what I really like to do is a one-legged squat or a Bulgarian split squat with the rear foot elevated, and I like to hold a single dumbbell goblet style. So you can just make sure you're going nice and far down. And then if you want to make that more challenging, once you've um, kind of gotten past the point where the heaviest dumbbell that you own isn't challenging enough for you, you can put a step in front of the bench. So now your front foot is on the step, and your rear foot is elevated on the bench, and this is called a Bulgarian split squat from a deficit. And it extends the range of, mo- range of motion, and it forces you to work a little bit harder. So that's another way to make that exercise more difficult. So you can do that. Then there's another one I like called the one-legged squat to bench. So you would stand in front of a bench with the bench behind you, and you would stick one leg straight out. So let's say your left leg is straight out ahead of you. And now your weight is all on your right leg, and all you want to do is control the descent onto the bench as slowly as you can. And what you'll notice is that about an inch to two inches before you actually sit down, you just kind of lose control. That's the weakest part of the range of motion for most people. And that's one of the reasons that uh, powerlifters work on box squats, to just try and train that last part of the range of motion. So you can do a one-legged squat to bench and then eventually add weight by holding onto a dumbbell. So there's that. Um, and, you know, that, that you could do that with just your body weight, and then eventually you can make it harder with, uh, with resistance bands and things like that. So then finally, um, for deadlifts and things, you know, again, one-armed variations of the deadlift or one-legged variations, the one, one-legged uh, single-leg deadlift. Single-leg Romanian deadlift is great where you hold either a barbell or a single dumbbell in front of you or even your body weight or you can tie a resistance band around something that's low to the ground, and as you straighten up at the top of the deadlift, the resistance will kick in, and that'll make it harder. So there's a lot of fun variations that you can do. All right, solid. Very good. Um, now, I just want to talk about workout length. At what point do you get diminished returns from the workout length? Like, How long do you recommend keeping the workouts, and, and what's the training frequency that you have in, in your program? Well, I, I've set it up two ways. You, I prefer for people to train often, um, do about four days per week. So <clears throat> the best schedule I have found is like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, or Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, something like that. You know, you don't want to you want to have two days in a row as infrequently as possible. So if you do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, the only time you're training two days in a row is Friday and Saturday. And usually, you know, you have Sunday off, and that's a very relaxing day. 
for most people. Um, or you could just do it, you know, it really depends on your schedule. If you only can make it to the gym three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday is fine. Now, in terms of workout length, I recommend that people keep their workouts, <clears throat> the actual training, and this doesn't include warm-up, this doesn't include, you know, post-workout cardio or what I call active recovery. At the end of every workout, I like for people to go for a walk. You don't have to do it right after the workout. Just do it at some point during the day because you will – it will help alleviate soreness. And, you know, I talk a lot about soft tissue work and foam rolling for recovery and stretching and all that. So if you're not including that as part of the workout, honestly, you, you should be in, in a less than an hour, considerably less. About 50 minutes is fine. Um, you know, some of these final phase fat loss workouts are taxing, so they, in the initial stages, they will require a fair amount of workout time, um, just because they'll force you to rest a lot. But, going forward from there, if, uh, you know, as you get more and more conditioned, you should be able to do it in, um, you know, 45, 50, 55 minutes. And I've had someone complete a full workout in 27 minutes, but this is an incredibly well-conditioned athlete. So if you can, if even if you're not that person and you still, it takes you literally double that amount of time, that's still just under an hour. So keep that in mind. Okay, cool. And then uh, I guess that's it for um, for the workout length. I guess one other question here is if someone only had 10 or 15 minutes, what would they do in, in a short amount of time? Like if they were using your program and they only had 15 minutes that day, what would they do? If they only had 15 minutes, what I would have them do is come up with a single circuit of three exercises, all compound exercises. So just like I did in that workout that I gave you, just, you know, an exercise, a pushing exercise, a pulling exercise, and a leg exercise. All you need is three exercises. And you would just do as many reps as you can with a given weight in 30 seconds each, rest, and then increase the weight and do it again. And again, from there, what I would just, after that, I would just take a bunch of different body weight exercises and get as many done in five minutes as I could. And that should take you about 50 minutes. So, you, you know, you just have to be creative. As long as you're hitting all of your major muscle groups with two heavy-ish sets, heavy-ish sets, not super heavy, but heavy-ish, um, after that, you can really just do a bunch of body weight stuff to get your heart rate up and burn more calories, and you should make progress. You know, the final phase fat loss program is, is you know, there's a method to the madness, so I would recommend trying to minimize the number of days where you're going to make changes uh, in that way. But, you know, obviously, life happens, and uh, from there, you just got to do the best you can. Okay, cool. Now, let's switch over to uh, some of the exercises that you've put in the program that we're putting together, the Clash of Titans follow-up mm -hmm. programs. So yep. you've got a, uh, an exercise in there called the Dumbbell Squeeze Press. What's that? Mm -hmm. Dumbbell Squeeze Press is its like a chest press. It's like a dumbbell chest press, only instead of just pressing the weight straight up, what you're going to do is the dumbbells are going to be in contact with one another the whole time. So instead of having you know like your hands like uh, in, a, in a pronated grip, like a barbell bench press, you're going to turn your hands towards each other so the dumbbells will be facing one another, and now you squeeze them together the whole time. Keep in mind that one of the main functions of the pectoralis is to add up the humerus. Now, that means to bring it medially across the body. So one of the things that you're doing is by pressing those weights, squeezing them together as hard as you can, is you're allowing the pecs to attempt to create 
that movement, even though the, the weights are blocking each other. So you can use lighter weight here, but you're still going to activate a lot more of the muscle fibers on your chest. And this is particularly true in the sternal fibers and particularly the inner fibers. So, you know, a lot of times you'll see guys with good outer chest development but no inner chest development. So it's more of a specialization exercise. And the reason I put it in there is because I know that in fat loss programming, we use a lot of very basic exercises. So I know that those are underdeveloped tissues for most people who primarily do your programs and my programs. So what this allows them to do is by using this exercise and hitting those muscle tissues and, and those fibers, which are, I don't want to say neglected, but which aren't given priority, they'll actually burn more fat because, again, this is a quote-unquote new exercise for them. And they'll, have, they'll be a little bit more adaptation, so it will force them to burn a little bit more calories. So even though it's a little bit more of a specialty exercise that you would think would be most effective in building muscle, it has merit in the context of a program like the one we've designed. Very good. Uh, let's talk a little about muscle soreness here. What, you know, people are always asking if I'm not sore, you know, was the workout good or does the, do I have to be sore to build muscle or burn fat? What, what's the Romanello rule on that? Well, you know, pain is not indicative of progress. And I think that in general, we sort of, you know, we're, we're really all the children of Arnold and we're all the children of, of sports movies, particularly in, in, you know, North America. And we think that if something isn't hard, then it doesn't work. And if something doesn't make us feel like crap, then it doesn't work. You know, when people diet, they, there's some psychological satisfaction that they get out of being hungry because then they know that they're quote unquote doing something right. Which certainly isn't the case. And you don't have to be sore after a workout. Now, any new workout with new stimulus will make you sore, but that will dissipate within the first week. That is your body's way of kind of adapting to the stimulus that you are exposing it to. That doesn't mean – now, you're gonna, your body will get, quote-unquote, accustomed to stimulus well before that stimulus becomes irrelevant. So you'll stop getting sore from a workout well before that workout stops being effective for you. And in the case of final phase fat loss, I wouldn't expect someone to be sore after week two, but I know that all six weeks of the program are super effective. So you don't have to be sore. Being sore is always nice, you know, the first couple of workouts. You're like, oh, this is new. This is a new movement. This is a new workout. You know, like my shoulders are sore, so I know that the overhead presses I did, I, I kind of did them right. It's a nice indicator, but, you know, pain isn't indicative of progress. It's your body's way of telling you that something is wrong, not that something is right. So if you're still sore after six weeks of training, you're probably not recovering adequately, and in which case you probably didn't make as much progress as you wanted to. And you need to address your recovery, and a lot of that is going to be how much you sleep, how much you rest, how often you allow yourself to have full recovery days, and, of course, what you're eating. Um, so you don't have to be sore. It's, it's you know, not necessary. Sometimes it, it's inevitable, but it shouldn't be the goal of the workout. It should be a side effect of the workout. Okay. And now you have a very impressive complex in uh, the workout that you sent me that we're working on with mm -hmm. the power clean and all that stuff. So why don't you take us through that because that's pretty pretty intense. Yeah, let me actually pull that up so I have it <clears throat> directly in front of me. Um, me just, sorry, I should have had this up. I'm sorry about the weight, guys. I just want to uh, give you guys exactly where I want to go through with you exactly as it's written. That way I can... Um, give you the best insight as to why I designed it that way. All uh, right. Should be pulling up. You know, momento. 
Or I can walk you through it here. It's the power clean, the front squat, the bent row, the push press, the stiff leg deadlift. And that's oh, okay. All right. So, yeah, so the main thing here is that when I design complexes, um, I always like to go from uh, what I call high-skill exercises to low-skill exercises. And the reason for that is that exercises which are just, like, more technically challenging in terms of the uh, the technical proficiency that is required to complete them, it, they're just, it's just better to have them first in the circuit before you start to really get exhausted. <laughs> Excuse me for my cough. I do apologize, guys. I'm just uh, I'm getting over a cold. Okay, so... Um, so, yeah, the, the, I always go from high skill to low skill. And so I, I categorize um, exercises that I would include in a complex into high skill, moderate skill, and low skill. High skill exercises would include the full clean, the full snatch, the you know high pull from the floor, overhead squats. Moderate would be hang cleans, hang snatches, high pulls, um, power cleans, power snatches, uh, push press, deadlift. Uh, front squats, and then low-skill exercises, which doesn't mean that they're easy. It just means that in terms of the actual technical proficiency, it's just a little less demanding. Um, you know, bent over rows, overhead presses, lunge variations, back squats, and stuff like that. So in the one that I gave you, um, there's a couple of different rules uh, for designing them. And, again, one of them is going from high skill to low skill, and then another is to use non-competing circuits. And um, the reason for that, again, is while one muscle is kind of resting, um, the other one is working. So we went from the power clean. And also in terms of setting up a complex, I like to do things that you that allow you to transition easily from exercise to exercise. So we do um, power cleans first. And, again, a power clean is where you start from a standing position, so it's not from the floor. So uh, it's kind of like a hang clean. The difference between a power clean and a hang clean is the finished position. In a hang clean, you finish in a full front squat position, and in a power clean, you finish in a quarter squat position. So the power clean, obviously, is a smaller range of motion. You you are uh, just a tad bit more explosive, and because there's not as great as an eccentric component to the squat, you can use more weight. So we go from power cleans, and because there's only a quarter squat in the power clean, I transition right from the power clean to the front squat because my quads are still pretty fresh. So then we'll go into front squat. From there, as soon as we finish the front squat, you know, and again, that's done with the, the weight in what we call the hang or the um, uh, in the rack, rather, which is that clean grip. Flip the hands back over, bend over with knees bent and lower back tight and go into a bent over row. And, again, now we're kind of engaging the hamstrings, but we've just used a lot of pressing muscles for the front squat and uh, and the power clean, so now we're using pulling muscles. Then we're going to clean the weight back up, go to push presses, and then finally stiff-legged deadlifts. So you can see that there's a lot of non-competition between exercises. Um, so the stiff-legged deadlift, you know, it, it's a, a challenging exercise, but it's done last because it doesn't require any explosivity the, the main thing you have to focus on there is engaging your hamstrings and keeping your lordotic curve tight so that you don't, you know, kind of round your back and put your spine in a dangerous position. The push press is explosive, but, you know, you're really just moving the bar in a straight line. Um, you know, again, the power clean requires the most there. The front squat is uh, it's a full squat to the ground. So, you know, that you could, if you're not paying attention, you can run into issues with your knees and the whole bit. So, you know, that's why it's set up like that. Um, Linda, did you have some specific questions about anything else, or does that about cover it? Oh, uh, you want to go into the rep scheme that you use? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you could just do, like, let's say, 
you know, I, I like to pick a weight that I could do anywhere between 12 to 15 reps with for, uh, for all of those exercises. And for me, that's, um, for that, for those, it was about 175 pounds. But, you know, a lot of people, when they set up complexes, just do like, okay, just do, just do sets of five. Do five power cleans, five front squats, five bent rows, five push presses, and five stiff legged deadlifts. And then you're done. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You could do that. Um, but what I like to do to make it a little bit more interesting, I like to do, um, pyramids, ascending and descending. So, like, I'll go through and I'll do, Six power cleans, six front squats, six bent rows, six push presses, six deadlifts. Then I put the bar down and rest minimally up to 75 seconds and then pick it up again. And now we do five reps for everything and then rest again and then do four reps for everything. So you're getting more and more fatigued, but you're also doing less work. The other thing you could do if you're a little bit more conditioned, you can start with just four reps for everything. Rest 45 seconds, go three reps for everything, rest 30 seconds. Then do two reps, rest 30 seconds, one rep, and then you're going to rest uh, about five to ten seconds, and then you're going to start at one, then go to two, three, and four. So you're going a descending, ascending turn setup. So it just makes things a lot more fun. You just get a lot more mentally involved, you know, instead of just being like, all right, do as many as you can and then rest. You know, you kind of go six, five, four, three, two, one, or four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four. It just keeps you more mentally engaged, and it's just a, a more entertaining way to do it, and I think that when you can have different ways, different rep schemes to set complexes up, you're more likely to enjoy them. And the more you enjoy them, the more likely you are to do them more often. So it's challenging, certainly. And, you know, I recommend that people start this with, you know, the bar or maybe five pounds on each side or ten pounds on each side and work their way up. You know, I do this with 175 pounds, but I've been working up to that for literally two years. And, you know, at this point, I'm very well conditioned. Uh, for complexes because they're one of my favorite ways to train. But, you know, it's, it, but it's fun that, you know, setting them up in that way is a lot of fun. Very nice, sir. Um, Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I mean, that just makes the challenge aspect of it much more valuable. And I've always been a big fan of getting people to try and beat a record because then you're trying to get a little more hooked on it and then that mm-hmm. way you're more willing to come back and, and give it a shot again next week. So. Now, exactly, and also another thing to consider there is let's say you've done it. You don't have to increase more weight. You don't have to increase the weight to make it more challenging. Let's say you started with six reps and you went six, five, four, three, two, one. If you want to make that more challenging, maybe next time you start at seven and you go seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and then eight, five, four, three, two, one. So you're making the workout a little bit longer, but you're keeping the weight the same. So at no point are you ever really going to be like, all right, well, how much weight do I jump up? Should I go up to 30 pounds, 80 pounds, 90 pounds? So just, you know, you, you don't really have to worry about the load as much because it's conditioning exercise after all. And that's just one way to do complexes. There are millions, you know, but um, it's just a cool little benefit there. Okay, very good. And then now let's let's talk a little bit more about your program and the changes that you've made this year from last year, from the original mm-hmm. version. Uh, what changes you've made and why? Well, there are a couple of things. First, I wrote a bunch of new workouts because I wanted to – when I, when I released Final Face Fat Loss, like I, I wanted it to be something that was kind of like a community, and I wanted to give new stuff. Like, the, you know, you could just do the same workouts from last year and get great results, but I've learned a lot this year. I've learned a lot about programming. I've, I've co-written programs with Joe Marion and yourself and Vince and the guys at Bodyweight Coach, so I've learned a lot, and that influenced my programming. So my goal for Final Face Fat Loss was to consistently give every single new upgrade 
<clears throat> to people who had already bought previous versions. So if you bought Final Phase 1, you're going to get the new workouts, and I wanted them to it to be worthwhile for them to look at it, so they get new workouts. If you buy Final Phase 3 next year, if I release it, they'll get those workouts as well. So the, the impetus behind writing the new workouts was to make it more of a challenge for me to do them, um, you know, to, to make them more interesting and to show that, you know, to show a little bit more of my growth as a, as a trainer, but also so that these people who had been with me since last year would have something to look forward to. The other thing was when I released Final Phase last year, I released it to not just people on my mailing list, but 5,000 people who, who didn't know me. They bought it based on recommendations from a number of other trainers. And I got to know them over this last year, and they got to know me. And it was a really valuable learning experience because people who had known me for a while were kind of, you know, familiar with my style. And these people were new, and they said, they had some complaints. They were like, well, why isn't this explained properly? Or what did you mean when you said this? And, you know, like, those questions hadn't come at me. So really what's been happening over the past year is people were getting a great workout and getting great results. But the feedback they were giving me, particularly the, you know, whatever negative feedback I got was extremely valuable because I realized that if you didn't necessarily know how to read programs because you've been following my work on teenage and in men's health for five years, maybe I needed to explain that a little bit more. And then there were a couple of things that I just kind of left out because I just figured everyone has their own way of doing it. Um, like, for example, in, in Final Phase 1, I didn't have a section on warming up because everyone has their own way to warm up and, you know, they do their own thing. And, like, some people like the Craig Valentine style warm-up. Other people like the Vince Del Monte warm-ups with the, you know, he does, like, broom twists and the whole thing. And, you know, other guys are, like, they're into MMA and, and they have their own style. But... What I failed to realize is that some people, they want a specific warm-up just for final phase. And so I wrote that. And, you know, that wasn't something that I didn't include because I was lazy. I just didn't think people really cared. And so uh, stuff like that is I've come to realize that people, they really want all the bases covered. And, you know, and I realized that it was a little bit um, presumptuous of me to, to try and figure out what people want and didn't want. So here I've tried to fill in all the gaps that people have revealed to me over the course of the year, and then let them decide how much they want. So I've expanded the nutrition section a little bit. I talk a little bit about uh, fasting in there. Um, you know, you know that I fast one day per week, and that's something that I'm really, like, learning a lot about from our uh, mutual friend Brad Pilon over at Eat, Stop, Eat. So I mentioned that in there. You know, it's not a requirement for the program. It's just something that's interesting. And uh, and then a lot of what I've I've put on the blog this year, the cool thing about running a blog is that anytime I've mentioned something in the, in the program, in the book itself, I can now link to a related blog post and allow people to have a place to go learn and ask questions and read what other people have asked. So if I have some, you know, let's say, for example, in the section I have on body fat testing, I wrote a three-blog post series on that. Do they have to read the whole thing? No, but if they scroll through it, maybe their question will be answered. Um, and But because I already have that much content generated over the, this past year, I've been able to sort of distill it and condense it, take the, the, the main bullet points from those three blog posts and put them into the book. So the book itself isn't just everything that I've learned from other people in terms of them wanting it for the past year. It's stuff that I've also written about this past year and gotten better at doing and better at communicating, and now that's directly in the book. So this book is is... It's not just the additions to programs.
cramming and, and filling up some holes. It's also taking, you know, the best of the Roman Fitness Systems blog and condensing it and putting that stuff in there because I think it's relevant. All right. Very cool. Uh, let's move into some nutrition stuff now. Sure. And take a look at what you do over the course of the day. Now, you start the day with 16 ounces of water. Why don't you talk about the importance of water and and do you see that being a big mistake that people are still making? They're just not getting enough water? You know what? I read the weirdest statistic, and I'm trying to remember where I read this. <clears throat> but um, it was some crazy thing. Like, in 60% of Americans, the thirst response is so weak that it's often mistaken for hunger. And that didn't sound like anything that I had heard before. And it, that might be a gross exaggeration. But it's certainly um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know where – this was posted at a gym uh, that I was working out, and um, and even if it's half wrong, okay, even if only 30% of Americans are thirst, so thirsty that they think they're hungry, that is still a tremendous amount of people. Um, and one of the things that I noticed, and this, is, this goes back 10 years, one of the things that I do when I start a new client is they have them keep a food log and have them write down everything they eat and drink, and then we go over it. And without question, like 90% of them, they're just not drinking enough water. Some of them don't drink any water. They have coffee and soda. So, you know, it's really, really, really important to stay hydrated. It's one of the single biggest things you could do. And it is literally, literally the easiest thing to fix. Just, it's there. It's free. Just drink it. You know? Um, it's, it's, I don't want to try to quantify how much more fat you could burn. But uh, the analogy I like to give is it's not just – it's the most important fluid in your body, right? If your body's a car, the, the water that you drink is not just the gasoline. It's also the oil in the antifreeze. All of the important fluids that the mechanic charges you $60 to change, you could be changing yourself for free by drinking more water. That's what you need to do. So on average, I recommend that if you're working out regularly, you just drink one liter per 50 pounds of body weight. So if you're a 100-pound woman, drink two liters of water a day, which really, you know, doesn't, it's not that much. It's, it's a, it seems like a lot, but it isn't. If you're, you know, a 200-pound man, drink four. You know, it's like these are pretty basic recommendations, but the first thing I do every single morning when I get out of bed is drink 16 ounces of water, and it's just that important. It's the, it's the first thing I do when I wake up. Very cool. So that's two cups of water right there, and you're... Yeah, you're on your way. On your way. Okay. And then uh, you move on into something called Athletic Greens. You have uh, a greens product at some point in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, there's a couple of different greens products that I've tried and that I've liked. Athletic Greens, um, it just it tastes really good, uh, which is one reason that I'm able to drink it with any level of regularity. It also mixes pretty well with other things. So, like, I've combined, I've blended it with some ice and some berries, um, but you can just mix it on its own, and it covers all of your nutritional bases. It's like getting like twenty some odd servings of vegetables. Um, so this was uh, this was originally given to me by the owner of the company, uh, Chris Ashenden, who you know is a, is a real great guy, really smart smart dude, nutritionist, um, and he's just he's a really good guy. And and he tried to convince me how important it was, and I was like, you know what? I take multivitamins, you know, I eat vegetables, and, you know, in his crazy uh, New Zealand accent, he was just like, oh, bro, just listen. And so he basically told me I was an idiot, and he's like, just try it for a week, 
And if you don't feel better, then I will post on my Facebook that I'm dumb. And if you do feel better, you post on your Facebook that you're dumb. I'm like, all right, well, any any chance to make someone look like an idiot is fun for me or make myself look like an idiot. So, you know, I listened to him. I buckled down. I had it every single day for a week and then two weeks and then a month. I felt better. Uh, it's good for immunity. It's good for digestion. It's got probiotics in there. It covers all of the bases that you would need where things want covered from a vitamin and mineral. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like it's not a glamorous um, supplement, you know, like a post-workout shake where you feel like you're, you know, energized. It doesn't have any stimulants in it. It's just some healthy stuff for you. So I know that all of the guys who are my age and younger are just not going to listen because they don't care about health. They only want to look good. But please, you know, if you, if my opinion and um, our recommendation means anything, pick up some athletic greens because it is, it's pretty good and it's tasty. And, you know, you can just mix it up pretty thick and take a shot of it. And, you know, for the people who don't like the way it tastes, stop being a bunch of pansies. You know, when you first started drinking beer or vodka or tequila, you didn't like the way that tasted either, and you managed to do it. So, you know, it's like, this is this is slightly more important. But, yeah, I really like it. I like greens. It's a, it's a good product, and, you know, I, I've managed to make it a habit to use it every day now. And you do just that a little bit faster because you, you cover any sort of nutritional gaps that are created when you diet. Do you find that you get sick once a year, or you don't get sick in ten years, or you know, how, how, uh, no, no? Yeah, on average, I get, I get um, somehow or another. I don't know if I'm just picking bad restaurants. I normally get sick twice a year. I get like one cold, um, which I fight off for about uh, a week. And I, for whatever reason, I'm telling you, somebody in my life doesn't like me. I get food poisoning like like once a year. I had it in Vegas uh, when I was out there, and you sent me that body weight workout. That was miserable. Um, so yes, sir. I don't. It was awful. Um, and I'm assuming that was just some, some Vegas food, but yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I really only get sick once a year, and then um, I, I was a, a childhood asthmatic. So when I do get sick, uh, it stays in my lungs for a little bit while I get like upper respiratory infections, but it doesn't inhibit me from training. It just makes things. It just doesn't clear up uh, in my lungs as fast as it does for other people. But uh, you know, I managed to. You know, I. I take time off. Um, I did a blog post about this, like what to do when you get sick, uh, which was cool. You know, something from Cressy. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, really good um, really good information in that blog post. So uh, it's, it's on my blog, and it's from Eric Cressy, and talks about how uh, vitamin C is very important and how echinacea, which people swear by, is um, actually does almost nothing, according to most studies. But so when I get sick, I just try to be smart and not train my way through it um, and just understand that, you know, just because I'm sick, I don't get to eat cookies all day just because my mom's taking care of me. But uh, I'll put it on the table. When I'm sick, I don't get sick. I get, I'm dying. Okay? Right now, I'm like most men. If, if I'm sick and, like, I tell my girlfriend, I'm like, I'm, you don't understand. You've never been this sick in your life. I'm dying, and I just need you to take care of me until I pass peacefully in my sleep. I want my dog. I want my blanket, and I want to watch Star Wars until I die, because I'm going to be dead in about five minutes. <laughs> so that's um, that's just kind of what happens. I, I'm very I'm I'm very whiny. I'm sick. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'm just a little, you know, I'm I'm kind of a pansy when I get sick. It's just I'm a whiner. All right, uh, let's move on into your meals now. With the fat loss program that you mentioned on the 24-hour uh, blog post, you you don't really eat until you've been up for quite a few hours. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah, this is uh, this is something else that's um, that I've been playing with uh, for about a year now. You know, people are always big on, like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and I don't, I don't think it's not. I, I just think the timing of your breakfast is probably a pretty transient thing um, for most people. If you 
are like me and you kind of run your day and you don't have to be anywhere at any specific time, uh, I think that you can really get away with pushing your meal back several hours. And this is something Brad talks about this and um, some, <laughs> sorry, some of the intermittent fasting guys like Martin Birkin talk about this. I have just always, um, whenever I've been trying to lose fat, I've always liked eating later in the day uh, because I find that I, my workouts are much more productive if I don't eat beforehand. Um, and also what I do find is that I do, uh, now that I'm writing pretty much full time, I find that I do my best writing before I've eaten. Once I eat, I get a little bit lethargic and everything. So, yeah, I don't I don't eat for the first five or six hours that I've been awake. Um, and this is not uh, uncomfortable for me. It used to be that I was hungry, but, you know, between the water and the athletic greens and then, like, I go down and I train pretty hard, um, then I do, uh, you know, then I'm fine. And then I have a big post-workout, you know, I have my post-workout shake. My pre- and post-workout shake, the total calorie is, uh, is maybe five or 600. And then, you know, about an hour after that, I have a meal. And, you know, it's usually very large, like five or six eggs. So getting a lot of calories right after my workout. And it's always best to have as many of your calories surrounding your training as possible. Um, you know, you're just going to absorb more there in terms of um, macronutrients and micronutrients for, you know, the, to correct the microtrauma you've created during your training. But, yeah, I uh, I wouldn't say it's for everyone. I don't think everyone should skip breakfast um, if you have to, like, get up and work and be functional and you like being full, then you should get up and have a healthy breakfast. But uh, for me personally, because I work out at, you know, my, my best workouts are like 11 or 12, um, I don't mind um, not eating from 7 o'clock in the morning until after the workout. It works really well for me. So, you know, that's kind of an individual thing. Okay, very good. And then you also cook some pretty quick meals. Like you, uh, when I was visiting you, you made those steak pretty quick. And then, mm-hmm. you know, just in the, the the meals that you mentioned on the blog post, you're you're very very quick with them. Uh, anything else you want to add? You like cooking, yeah. right? I, I do like to cook. I you know like um my my cheat day when I when I'm cooking um cheat meals, it's uh you know it's like if I'm cooking pasta or lasagna, like I'll really take my time and put together a nice meal. But you know you have to keep in mind that I was literally in bodybuilding mode for three years, okay? And I did this from the time I was 19 until the time I was like 22, 23. And I would eat tuna out of a can, and, like, food became a very necessary sort of thing. It was like, okay, it's time to eat, not, oh, I get to eat now. It was just like, oh, what? yeah, I need 30 grams of protein and some other stuff so that it doesn't taste like crap. And, you know, I would just put a bunch of tuna in a bowl and then put some salsa on top of it and go from there. And... So now anything I eat that isn't that is delicious. So I just don't need – I don't go in for a lot of food prep on when I'm losing fat. You know, I, I, I like to season my steak with dry rubs, and, you know, I'll, I like my steak rare. So I'll just throw it, you know, in a pan with some coconut oil, three three minutes on one side, two minutes on the other, and it's done. Um, so I really enjoy cooking, um, but being very honest, I have always – and this is because my mother was a pastry chef. I've always been more of a baker than a cook, and um, I'm getting a little off topic here, but baking is something that requires you to follow a specific number of steps in a specific order in a very specific way, otherwise things go horribly bad. So baking is very rules-oriented, whereas cooking you can kind of, you know, you, it's a, bit, a little bit more lackadaisical, you can kind of, you know, as long as everything winds up in the pot, like it's all going to taste the same. Baking is not like that. Um, so I have always been a better baker than a 
than a cook because either you bake something exactly the way the recipe says and make very minimal changes and it comes out good, or you try to do your own thing and it comes out like crap and you throw it out anyway. Um, so as a cook, because I am very impatient, um, I make mostly fast meals because I just want to eat. Whereas when I'm baking things on cheat days, I really like to enjoy the process and I'll make my own handmade dough and, you know, I don't make anything out of a box. Everything is from scratch. And that process is very fun for me. But um, when, I'm, when I'm dieting for fat loss, everything is, my whole life seems like it's kind of accelerated. So I would rather make fast meals. So, you know, I'll just do things that are easy for me to multitask. It's very easy for me to, to put on some steamed broccoli and or steamed spinach or steamed cauliflower in one pot and then have the steaks going in another pot and then, you know, in, in, a, or in, a, in a pan rather. And then in a pan in the back, I'm also, you know, maybe doing some, some eggs. Things that I could do, I don't really have to pay a lot of attention to are easier when I'm working for fat loss because it's just, you know, it, it's very quick. And that's just, that works better for me. I really believe in, in meals that don't take a lot of time because if you look at your schedule and you realize you only have an hour to eat, mentally you're calculating that it's going to take you 17 minutes to cook, eat, and clean up, then you can do it. But if you're looking at your clock and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I really only have an hour and it's going to take me 45 minutes just to get the meal ready, you're probably going to wind up eating something that isn't on your plan. So having a bunch of fast meals... Um, you know, it's very different. You know, it, it just, it's more effective, I think. You have never baked me anything. I have, well, we'll have to remedy that, Craig. I promise that the next time you come to New York, uh, I will, we will bake. We can bake together. We'll get it on video. And, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll I be said, a lot of fun. I, I said you haven't baked me anything. Oh, okay. Well, I will bake and you can hold the camera and it'll be. Well, I've <laughs> Ship it, right? Can you just make it? Uh, no, you gotta eat it right. You're not shipping you baked goods. It's not the same. You know, you gotta eat it out of the oven if you really want the full experience. All right, all right. Okay, so you uh, your diet is high protein, moderate fat, and then lots of fruits and vegetables, right? Are you counting calories? Are you using experience? Uh, yeah, at this yeah, point, uh, I, I yeah, like I mean, you know, again, I, I used to weigh my food and, and did the whole thing. Um, so now I kind of um, – I figure out, um, like, if I'm going to start a fat loss diet, let's say um, I was going to start today, I would figure out how many calories I need, and then I would figure out 10 to 15 meals that I could eat, and then I would just rotate them. Um, but now it's very instinctual. Like, I, I don't feel that I need to count calories to lose fat now because I've been doing it <clears throat> been doing it for so long. You know, just like – you know how, like, if you lay down on a bench press with 225 pounds – you can do that that first rep, rep number one, and you'll be able to tell kind of how many reps you'll be able to do and if you're able to go up in weight or if you need to go down. That first sort of moment kind of gives you enough insight based on your years and years of experience that you're able to make changes based on that. Very similar to how I am with diet. Like at this point, um, you know, it's uh, it's been 10 years now of uh, of bodybuilding and fitness-related eating, so – it's it's not hard for me to have an understanding of what my meals need to look like because I have maintained roughly the same body weight since I'm 23. Um, you know, my dad, uh, when I was 22, I got to my peak of 203 pounds, 7% body fat. And then, you know, after that, I shrunk a little bit, and I've maintained about anywhere between 188 and 195 pounds at anywhere between 
you know, five for photo shoots and as high as 12 when I'm a fat ass. Um, so, you know, but that's, even that isn't like a huge range. It's seven pounds of fat one way or the other. So it really, it, you know, it just depends the, the quality of the food that you're eating, not really the quantity, quality of the food and the quality of the, the exercise. All right. And then one other thing, do you find that uh, fruits and vegetables is an easy, easy place to improve your clients when they come in? And, and what do you recommend and tell them? Oh, yeah. Um, first thing is that I just try to get people to, when they write everything down, I just um, let everyone kind of look at their food log. And I'm like, all right, well, I need you to pick out five things you're, you're doing, you know that you're doing wrong. And most people are able to do that pretty quickly. They look at it and they're like, yeah, it was definitely shouldn't have eaten that or I didn't need to eat that bagel. Um, so most people feel like they, they like handheld foods. Um, when they're in a rush, so they go for bagels and Pop-Tarts and things like that. So if you can just get them to ditch that crap and add in fruits, you know, a lot of times people get so crazy. They're like, oh, fruits, you know, an apple, it's like, you know, it's got 25 grams of carbs in it. And I'm like, all right, but the bagel you were eating had 75, so we've still made progress, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, it just it just replacing crap foods with fruits is usually a good place to start. And uh, for vegetables, it's um, it's a little bit harder because most people need to prepare them, and that's something that they're not really like really ready for. Uh, so a lot of times, what I what I'll tell people to do is I'll give people recipes for stir fries, you know, where they can just make like a you know very low calorie stir fry with like chicken or steak, and then they can buy the pre sliced vegetables and put that all in the wok or the frying pan together with a little coconut oil, and it'll all come up very nice, and um. So that's a nice way to start throwing vegetables into your diet, you know, with like a saute or something like that, rather than having people steam them or grill them, because it's just the amount of prep is harder. But fruits are very, very easy. And then what about some advanced nutrition changes? Anything you got uh, that help people take it to the next level when they're already doing pretty well? Sure. Uh, fish oil. Um, so this is something that I think on in general we're all now recommending, but I like to give credit where credit is due. And this is something I take from Christian Thibodeau. <clears throat> if you're trying to lose fat, you should be ha- taking one gram of fish oil or krill oil per, pa- per percentage of body fat that you have. So if you're 10% body fat, take 10 grams of fish oil. And sometimes that will mean... You'll have to take up to 20 pills, which is very inconvenient. So I recommend that people pick up a liquid fish oil from, like, Carlson Labs. They have a lemon-flavored one, which actually isn't bad. And, again, you know, it doesn't taste the greatest, but neither does tequila, and you manage to find your way to drink that for 15 years. So I don't want to hear it. Um, so, again, just a liquid fish oil, is it's easier to take slightly higher doses. And just, you know, as long as you're getting one gram per percentage point of fat currently on your body, you should be able to lose fat. Uh, relatively quickly and at the same time get all the benefits of fish oil, including joint lubrication and um, all the other stuff, you know, like um, uh, heart health, good for your hair, your skin, your nails, your teeth, your brain, your eyes, you know, good for everything. Fish oil is is kind of a panacea. So, yeah, that that would be like an advanced tip that I would give people. Very nice. All right, now let's hit everyone's favorite uh, subject, the cheatings of the meal. Ooh, the cheat meals. Um, okay, what do you want to know? Well, you know, just give us an example of what you do, what you recommend your clients do. Is it a day? Is it a meal? Is it, uh, you know, does it differ between, you know, where you are 
in your uh, progress? Yeah, um, I, I think that a lot of people can get away with a, a cheat meal, and other people kind of do better with it. It depends on what you're doing. If you're like a super strict dieter, and, you, you know, um, but you know what, let me start this way. I'm sorry. You can divide dieters into two specific camps. There are rules dieters, and there are freedom dieters. Rules dieters need very specific rules, and if they don't have them, they will completely screw up, okay? And that's me. So I know that I can't eat, if I'm dieting to lose fat, I shouldn't eat more than 100 grams of carbs per day on the high end. I need to eat about 300 grams of protein, and I need to have, you know, say, 100 grams of fat. And I break, and I try not to eat fats and carbs in the same meal, because that's something that I've always done, because I stole it from John Berardi, and it always worked for me. Recent evidence has shown that's really not, you know, necessary, but who cares? I've been doing it for 10 years, and it works. Um so here's a scenario. I talked about this in my blog, Cheat Days and Mondays, where I talked about the danger of the Monday mindset. So it's like, you know, I'll go out to lunch with, uh, let's say, you know, Nate Green, um, another good fit pro. Now, Nate has never really needed to diet. He stays pretty lean. You know, so we'll go out to lunch, and I'll get my salad and my grilled chicken and some steamed veggies and, or, you know, maybe a steak and veggies. And Nate will just he'll – get, he'll get a beer, and he'll get whatever he wants to eat. Now, he just happens to eat pretty healthy. Maybe he orders a burger and fries. And then I have one of his fries, and then I have two of his fries, and now I'm just like, all right, I'm just going to – now I'm eating like crap, so let me just order my own. And then – so maybe this is at noon, and now it's like, well, the whole day is shot to crap. Let me just eat whatever I want for the rest of the day. And God forbid this is on like a Thursday, then I'm like, all right, let me just eat whatever I want for the rest of the weekend, then I'll start up strong again on Monday. It's very dangerous. So I am what we call a rules dieter. So I can't break the rules because once I do, it becomes easier and easier to do that. So a way for me to maintain uh, the integrity of the diet is to know that there's an end in sight, and if I need it, I can have a cheat day. And so I like a whole day of cheating. So I wake up, I work out, and um, I like an entire cheat day, and I find that's very effective for me. There are other people who are freedom dieters. They can't – once you tell them, quote, unquote, you're on a diet, they just – they can't follow it for anything. Like they're not good with restrictions they're better with general recommendations. And these are people like me who most of the time is going to do the right thing anyway, so why should you define it? You just give him basic recommendations that he needs to fulfill in terms of protein requirements and fat requirements and veggie requirements, and you'll just expect that the rest will sort of take care of itself. So a guy like me, if he's looking to boost fat with a cheat day, he can probably get it done in a cheat meal. So it's really what you're doing the rest of the week that determines how effective a cheat day versus a cheat meal will be. I have to be, I have to, by nature, be super, super strict during the week and then have a cheat meal on the weekend and then I follow up my, a cheat day rather on the weekend, cheat day, not cheat meal, and then I follow my cheat day with a fast day, as I talked about in, in my blog and, you know, we covered in the Extreme Fat Loss Diets. So that works very well for me. Other people, uh, a single cheat meal is better. And, you know, they'll go out and they'll get, you know, a burger and fries and a lot of cheesecake for dessert, and then that's it. They can jump right back on the bandwagon, and they don't feel like they missed out on anything. Um, so it's very personality-driven. So what I would suggest to listeners out there is try and put yourself in one of those two categories. If you are a rules dieter and you feel like you need to be super, super strict in order to make progress, give yourself one cheat day once every week or every two weeks, and try to follow it up with a fast day where you have many, very minimal calories um, and it allows yourself to just start, like, detoxifying. If you are a freedom dieter 
and you generally don't do well with rules and you do better with, like, basic guidelines, then you'll probably do very well with a cheat meal. And that will allow you to get the kind of stuff that you've been craving without completely, you know, jumping out the window. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I, I'm pretty sure I'm out of questions here, so I appreciate all the info you've given. Anything else you want to share? Um, no, I just, you know, I appreciate, as always, the, the uh, opportunity to share with the, the TT readers, and I appreciate you co-designing a workout with me. I had a lot of fun doing that. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting Final Face Fat Loss 2 into the hands of everyone who bought Final Face Fat Loss 1, and for anyone who hasn't uh, picked up any of my stuff yet, I know that when you do, you won't be disappointed. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Check out the blog and, and all the other fun stuff. Awesome. Really appreciate it, John. So thank you very much. And everyone can check out his information at fixslowfatloss.com and his blog at romanfitnesssystems.com. And he's also on the Book of Faces, right there, John? Yeah, the Book of the Face slash Roman Fitness Systems. All right. Awesome. So thank you very much, everybody, for being on the call. We will talk to you soon. And wishing you fantastic fat brain. Bye-bye, everyone.